there are a lot of people who are done with evangelical churches who are very quiet about it. They're not really on the internet. They're not really being influenced by, you know, the kind of deconstruction or deconversion stories that are occurring there. And the, and even kind of within the exvangelical group, there's some very interesting, probably subgroups and subsets that look very, very divergent from each other. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview. Welcome to Outstanding, where we have critical conversations about the news of the day and the ideas that shape us. Once again, I'm your host, Joseph Backholm. It's great to have you with us today. Today, we're going to talk about de-churching. Did you know that 15% of all Americans have de-churched? And that means they used to attend church at least once a month, and now they don't attend even once a year. And this is a group that represents 40 million Americans. Of course, lots of people have tried to understand this group because they are probably closely related to the deconstructed group, which are people who have dismantled the faith they grew up with and are now rebuilding something they either like better or think is more true. Now, there's a wide range of opinions as to why people are leaving church. Some say it's because the church is too political. Others say it's because the church isn't political enough. Some say it's because the church has been become too contemporary or secret sensitive. And others say it's because the church is no longer relevant and hasn't been seeker sensitive enough. Well, my guest today has done some serious research and thinking on this subject. Michael Graham is the co-author of the book, De-Churching, Who's Leaving? Why Are They Going? And What Will Bring Them Back? Now, I recently heard Michael and his co-author, Jim Davis, present their research at a conference in Fort Worth. I was only allowed to ask one question, so I brought him on today so I can unload all of the other ones that I have. Uh, in addition to being a co-author of this book, he's the program director at the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. He's also executive producer and writer for the As in Heaven podcast. He received his master's in divinity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, where he happens to live with his wife, Sarah, and their two kids. Michael, thanks for coming on today. It's so good to be here with you. Well, first, I, I just gave a little bit of your bio. Tell us a bit more about how you kind of came to become somebody who's interested in understanding why people are leaving church. Yeah. So Jim Davis, um, who's the co-author uh, with me on the Great De-Churching book, um, and I, we were both pastors together at Orlando Grace Church in Orlando. And we had run across some data that had said that um, up to 42% uh, of our metro area had de-churched. And that came as a real shock to us. Um, that same data set had said that 6% of our city was evangelical. And that was the same percentage as New York City and Seattle at that time. And we really kind of began to ask ourselves of like, okay, well, we really have the same percentage of evangelicals in Orlando as we do as New York City and Seattle. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us because those cities seem and feel very different. And it just kind of dawned on us of like, okay, oh, well, those are unchurched cities and we're a de-churched city. Unchurched is when somebody hasn't had a consistent pattern in their lifetime of ever going to church. 
in de-church, as you mentioned, is, you know, somebody who used to go to church at least on a monthly basis and now less than once per year. And so de-church context and unchurched context, they feel different culturally. And so we felt like, okay, well, we're not sure whether this phenomenon is this widespread or not. And the data that we had was, was, was several years old and it wasn't actionable from a either pastoral, um, church staff, or even just mom, dad, you know, who loves their adult kids, but they don't go to church anymore, or just the people in the pews who are missing, you know, friends and loved ones and neighbors that they'd like to see there again. And so that's when we contacted social scientist, Ryan Burge, who's widely regarded as the best data person in, um, in kind of academia with respect to um, quantitative data on religious trends. And so um, we got with Ryan and, you know, just kind of talked with him like, okay, what would it cost? What would it take for us to do, uh, you know, the, the largest and most comprehensive um, study on this subject? What would be some of the things that we want to ask and kind of drill down on? And so um, he gave us some idea of, you know, what, what kind of funds we need to raise. So we went out and raised those funds and we did a, um, a 7,000 person study over three phases with, um, that final phase, having a lot of detail on what happened among evangelicals, um, who dechurched. And in that final data set, we have over 600 data points per, um, respondent in that. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the similarities between Orlando and a place like Seattle. I'm actually from Seattle. I don't live there now, uh, but we do joke in the Northwest about how we're not praying for a revival. We're praying for a revival because we didn't have the initial one to re in the first place. Um, but there's a lot of truth to that um, and, and that uh, there is kind of based on the history of a, of a region, uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, either people are part of the church historically or they're not. And in the Northwest, I think a lot of people fled up there just to kind of get away from everything. And they, they never uh, didn't have the attachments that the East Coast has, the Northeast to kind of Catholicism and the Southeast to kind of old mainline, uh, whether it's Baptist Protestantism, which is, I think, primarily what it is. But those don't exist in other places. But to hear that despite these divergent histories, um, the the percentage of those going to church are the same. Um, that does uh, indicate a, a a major trend. Now, I want to get into that because we we are inclined to think of those who have, as you described, de-churched. And I gave a definition of that at the top, which I actually took from your research. This is your definition that I have provided to our audience today. Those who used to attend church more than once a month, who now don't even attend church once a year. We're inclined to talk about that group kind of monolithically, but your research has kind of revealed that this is not a monolithic group. What are kind of the subcategories that you discovered within the larger framework of the de-churched? Yeah, in the book, we talk about six different profiles. Um, there's a mainline profile and a Roman Catholic profile. Um, those folks de-churched largely in the late 80s to early mid 90s. And a lot of their dechurching kind of happened towards the direction of the secular left. Um, the, so the ages of those people today are largely in their mid fifties and they trend more female than male. Um, we have a lot more granularity on what occurred 
with respect to the evangelicals who dechurched. And so we have four profiles among the evangelical dechurched. And those profiles are cultural Christians, number one. Number two, mainstream dechurched evangelicals. Three, exvangelicals. And then four, a, a group that we call BIPOC, which that's just an acronym that stands for Black Indigenous Persons of Color. Now, it's important to understand that when we when we developed these profiles, we didn't do them ourselves. So, you know, because you don't do that yourself because one, it's a huge data set and it'd be really hard to do that. And two, you don't want to introduce bias. And so what we did with Ryan is uh, he used his machine learning algorithm to basically cluster people who had very common answer choices on things like what they believed, when did they leave, why did they leave, their willingness to return, and under what conditions would they be willing to return. And so these clusters were sorted on those five things right there. Now, what's interesting to note is that we did not allow the machine learning algorithm to see or sort on race or ethnicity. However, the clusters um, end up with some pretty common and fairly monolithic in terms of their uh, racial and ethnic makeup. So the cultural Christians are 98% white. The mainstream evangelicals are 91% white. The ex-evangelicals are 82% white. But the BIPOC group is 0% white. Hence, it's by definition. black. Yeah, by definition. Yeah. And, and let so, me ask you, can I ask you a question about that, actually? Because I'm, I'm curious about why BIPOC black indigenous persons of color. And that phrase is not, I know, original to you. That's, that's used in, in many contexts. Why was that a, its own category rather than a, than kind of subsumed by the other categories in your research? Yeah. So this group, um, well, the reason why it's its own category is because the machine learning algorithm made it its own category. Um, but it, so, it, so we have to make some sense of why, why did it sort those people together? And I think the, some of the primary reasons why it sorted that group together were first, th this group of people left earliest. They left in the late 1990s, shortly before you know, the turn of the millennium. And they were also the highest income and the highest education of any of the profiles as well. They were also overwhelmingly um, African-American men. And so a very interesting, you know, so when you're looking at the data and you have, you know, one and a quarter million African-American men who have very substantial six, six plus figure, you know, incomes on average and, you know, graduate degrees on average. Well, that's something that I think uh, that, you know, the, that machine learning algorithm is kind of picking up on. So to that point, does that tell us that, um, non-white people have de-churched for totally different reasons than white people? Is that what that categorization is suggesting? The, there's, you know, anytime you have large sets of data, you're always going to have layers of places where things overlap and things where they don't. And so at the highest scale, we talked about two different types of de-churching in the broadest trends. Those who de-churched casually, these are people who left unintentionally with no real pain points, and they did so for pragmatic reasons. Things like, I moved, that's the number one reason. Number two, uh, 
attendance was inconvenient. Number three, uh, there was some kind of family change, marriage, remarriage, divorce, the birth of a child, those different kinds of things. The second category of broad dechurching, we call dechurch casualties. These are people who left intentionally. They left with pain points, either interpersonal pain, pain points, institutional pain points, or both. And so the the, the first two categories, the cultural Christians and mainstream evangelicals, they left primarily casually. The BIPOC group is a mixture of people who left casually and with some casualty elements, with some hurt um, there. And then the ex-evangelical group is entirely um, in that latter, latter category of de-church casualties, people who left highly intentionally with a lot of pain. Compare the size of those groups for us, those who left yeah. casually by virtue of moving and those who like made a choice. I'm, I'm mad about something. I'm upset. I'm a casualty of something. So I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. So before our research, there were two primary stories that were told about the many people, you know, the millions of people who had left church. If your media diet leaned a little bit left, the story was, well, churches have made a lot of mistakes and people have left because it's the church's fault primarily on issues of racism, misogyny, clergy scandal, clergy abuse, and political syncretism. If your media diet leaned a little bit right, the second story that was told was, well, people have left primarily because of secular progressivism and the sexual revolution. Now, what's interesting is that neither of those stories are, are false. You can find um, several million people who fit either of those two stories, but the, the biggest story and probably the most important story and the largest story is that you know 30 of the 40 million people who left um they left for very pragmatic reasons reasons like i moved attendance was inconvenient some kind of you know change in, in your family and so that's a boring story however that story is really really good news and here's why those first two stories you can't really do much about Okay, I can't change racism, misogyny, clergy scandal, clergy abuse, political syncretism, nor can I change uh, secular progressivism and the sexual revolution. These are all cultural forces that are much larger, not only than any individual, but they're larger, larger than any institution. You could get every evangelical institution in this entire country working on, you know, those seven issues, and we still might not make much, you know, much of a dent in those things. However, if people have largely left for very pragmatic reasons, and reasons that don't really actually seem like they're very good reasons, then the good news is, is, well, we actually now have agency in helping see many of those people return. And, you know, what we learned in, in another piece of incredible hope um, was that over half the people who left evangelical churches are willing to return to an evangelical church today. So to your original question, that's all that is context for this. There's 8 million cultural Christians and then the mainstream ex-evangelical and BIPOC group are between two and two and a half million people each. Now, what's interesting is of the cultural Christians, about half are willing to return to an evangelical church today. 100% of the mainstream evangelicals are willing to return to an evangelical church today. 0% of the ex-evangelicals are willing to return to an evangelical church, but four-fifths of them, 79%, are willing to 
to go to a different type of Christian church that's not evangelical. And then the BIPOC group, about two thirds of them are willing to return to an evangelical church, which blows my mind because that, I mean, imagine being out of church for over 25 years and, you know, saying that, hey, you're willing to, you know, go back right now. That, that just kind of blows my mind. So there's a lot of numbers that are coming at us here. And I want to make sure I'm, I'm, I want to tr- try to track this and make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. So this universe of 40 million people, it sounds like. 75% of them, so 30 of those 40 million, didn't leave antagonistically. They just kind of left casually, somewhat passively, which means they're yes. not necessarily hostile to returning. Is that correct? Correct. 100% correct. And so the key for those folks is what? Relationships? Yeah, it's really two things. Um, so on the individual interpersonal front, it's just us relating to people in really an understanding way. And so we talk about two different things in the book. Um, The first is just relational wisdom. And we define relational wisdom when we possess um, six key awarenesses. So an awareness of God, that's a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and, you know, an awareness of what he has to say in the Bible and, you know, God's word and um, all the things that are true in general and special revelation Two, some level of self-awareness. Um, others awareness, that's awareness that other people exist and we're aware of their presence, um, awareness of how others are. So in real time, we're, you know, we're in tune with other people's, you know, verbals and nonverbals in terms of, you know, how am I coming across and then, um, cultural awareness and emotional awareness. And when we have those kind of six awarenesses in some, some measure of, you know, growing, uh, you know, status within our person, then we're going to be people who are increasingly persuasive. And the second thing that we encourage is a posture of quiet, calm curiosity. So in our kind of challenging, fractured, um, increasingly vitriolic, particularly in terms of, you know, in the digital and social media spheres, It's actually easier, I think, for us to stand out as Christians because the bar has become lowered. The greater the caricature is about evangelicals, then the easier it is for us to be surprising when we're engaging with people kind of, you know, on the cul-de-sac, you know, you know, in in real life embodied. And so, I mean, I know I found this you know, very true. And so we talk about a posture of quiet, calm curiosity. Quiet, calm curiosity is when you are confident in who you are, you're confident in your identity in Christ, and you have a posture of really being interested in other people. And so you ask good questions about, you know, I always think about conversations and when it, when it, when it comes to connecting with other people, I think about four categories. Um, It comes in the acronym Ford, like Ford trucks, Um, family, occupation, relationships, and dreams. So those are the things I'm talking about, you know, with my neighbors, you know, on the cul-de-sac when I'm looking to get to know, you know, new people, I want to know about their family. I want to know about their, you know, their occupation, their work. And I want to know what, you know, who are the people who are important to you and what are, you know, what are your, your hopes and dreams, you know, in, in life. And so 
I don't want to relate to somebody for very long before that at least they know that I care about spiritual things. And here's how I introduce um, uh, a spiritual dynamic into conversations very naturally using this kind of quiet, calm, curiosity posture. I'll ask the question, um, very simple question. It's my, probably my favorite question for just, you know, having an initial introduction in of spiritual conversation with people who I'm regularly around. Um, are you a person of faith? It's a very non-threatening question. You know, somebody can say yes, they can say no, they can say I'm spiritual, but not religious. No, I don't have anything at all. Uh, well, I was this, but now I'm that. It opens the doors for all kinds of, you know, and it's uh, it's a non-threatening question. It's it's not that dissimilar to, you know, asking somebody if, you know, it, are you somebody who appreciates prayer? Um, it's just, it's an easy, you know, an, an, an easy way into those things. So that posture of quiet, calm curiosity, I'll ask that question and then I'll just sit back and listen and hear what people have to say and, you know, tell me, you know, they'll tell you what their relationship has been to, you know, to faith, to God, to Jesus, to the gospel, to various different, you know, um, denominations or traditions or, you know, kind of what they grew up with. So when you sit back and you listen and you don't have to really say much, you know, you listen to what they have to say and then, you know, whatever they have to say, you know, be, you know, be all there and be present and you'll, there'll be natural follow-up questions. They're like, you know, things like, well, how, you know, how was that for you? Or, you know, tell me about that particular shift that you had there. What happened? Um, you know, just simple things. And you sit back and listen, people will tell you which, which parts of the gospel will speak most powerfully to them. If you just, you know, ask good questions and listen. I like that acronym and I've never heard that Ford family occupation relationships and dreams, just in general, a way to just get to know what matters to people. And I think, uh, it's practical, but also biblical that when we show uh, interest in someone else's life, they're going to have more interest in what we have to say. And that uh, when we are, uh, we are understanding uh, loving people in the way we just listen to somebody, um, that matters. But, you know, this is actually triggering another question in a related conversation, because as we're recording this, we're a few days out from the Super Bowl. And there was a, the, the He Gets Us ad campaign ran on the Super Bowl, which not didn't just run on the Super Bowl. Um, but since the series that ran of ads that ran on the Super Bowl, there's been a lot of social media conversation about whether these He Gets Us ads are too soft because they don't call people to um, repentance. They um, are simply basically making the point that Jesus washed the feet of sinners. And there's a number of depictions of that. Um, oddly, it all shoots kind of left. Um, we have Jesus uh, washing the feet of people who appear to have just gotten an abortion, washing the feet of people who um, appear to be um, some version of LGBT and that kind of inference. There's no Jesus washing the feet of MAGA folks which is one of the criticisms. It's interesting, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on just how a message like that resonates with the, the culture that is on a spectrum of hostility to the gospel and uh, to all the way toward complete ignorance of the gospel. 
what is that campaign from based on your knowledge of it? Is it hitting the right notes for a de-churched world? It's, um, I don't know too much about the, the ins and outs of the he gets us uh, thing. I guess I would think about that. I think what they're trying to do, it seems like, is pre-evangelism. Um, you know, so you're an increasingly, you know, kind of post-Christian and secular society. And uh, I guess, for lack of a better word, I guess it seems like, um, you know, pre-evangelistic, um, not necessarily uh, meaning to communicate uh, the actual content of the gospel, whether or not it accomplished. I, I'm not really sure what, what, their, what the exact aims of all of that are are seeking to accomplish. Certainly it has people talking about, you know, um, the campaign itself. And maybe people are talking about, you know, the, the claims of, of Jesus. Certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe there's an open door there though, um, to just ha having something in the cultural moment. Hey, what did you think about those? You know, maybe it provides you an, an occasion on the cul-de-sac to ask, Hey, what did you think about those? Uh, I mean, cause I think what 112 million people watched the Super Bowl, So that's like, that's, that's almost half. Yeah. That's almost half of adult Americans. It was the largest viewed event. I think since the moon landing, I believe is what I read. So yeah, a lot of people were watching the Super Bowl, and, and purely from a marketing standpoint, the ads have generated conversation. So in that sense, it seems like they've been effective. But of course, you want people talking about the right things, and and I do wonder, um, in the the you know the, the parable of the sower makes it very clear that there are there there's different kind of ground, and how many people in terms of an evangelistic field, just need someone to tell them that you are actually worthy of love and that there's a point in repenting? How many people need to hear that compared to the audience that needs no, that, that believes they're actually perfect and needs to be convinced that repentance is something they need to do? Are those two distinct audiences that we need to be mindful of as kind of evangelists? Yeah, I definitely, you know, I think there were two things that really stood out in the data as it pertained to kind of what you might call middle America. Um, the first of those two things was the, that de-churching was disproportionately negatively impacting those with lower education and lower income. And when initially that was kind of a surprise to us because in secularization thesis and you know so in sociology um as as gdp you know that's that's the amount of income on average in a country rises um, the spiritual nature of those countries declines but the opposite trend seems to be going on at least among middle class and upper middle class people in the united states the more your middle class or more your upper middle class, the more spiritual you tend to be and religious in the United States. And so, but then when we started thinking about, okay, well, if most of the reasons why people left um, church were probably pragmatic reasons and very practical things. And when life shifts, like, you know, moving and in, you know, you know, the inconveniences of attending church and or family change, well, it makes sense that those things would land disproportionately hard on those who had 
you know, less income to, with which to shoulder those kinds of, yeah. you know, life shifts and life challenges. The second thing that, that stood out to us really was that, you know, while the dechurching that was occurring in the 1990s had people moving, maybe the, the people who left the church drifting left politically, you know, towards, you know, more towards secular progressivism on the secular left, the, the dechurching that we're seeing right now is happening at twice the rate on the secular right. And so I do think that there's, there are things that need to be done. You know, the, the gospel is good news for people in middle America and in the Rust Belt, you know, too. And I think that I don't know if we've done the best job at communicating that um, in, in certain circles. And so we don't want to see people, you know, look, it's not that we don't care about public policy and what we think is, you know, in the interest of, you know, public good. And we're not, you know, we're not, you know, not, not voting in these different kinds of things. However, at the end of the day, you know, our, our, what we worship, um, the Jesus flag has to be, you know, the, the top flag of everything. And we live for, for him and for his kingdom above, you know, above everything else. But that doesn't mean we, we don't care about our communities and don't want, you know, what's, what's in the, in the best interest of those things. Those things being said, I think that um, there are many who have been tempted to, to kind of making the, the those political um, aims on the right, they just found more solidarity among people um, in that direction and in political community than what they found in uh, in religious community. And so, th- there's a question there in terms of chicken and the egg. In terms of like, okay, well, is is what's being revealed there kind of what's always what had always been there but maybe just below the waterline or is it that people are feeling you know less at home in evangelical churches and hence they're finding a new and different community that's more politically you know centered so we don't there's I, i don't know there's a lot of evidence that people are kind of finding their communities online in in various affinity groups and a lot of that is political there's a lot in what you just he talked about though in the fact that the de-churched are kind of lower education, lower income. We also know that that is increasingly true about marriage as well, and the how marriage has kind of become a privileged upper class institution. And the poorer you are, the less likely you are to be married. Do you uh, perceive any connection between those things? Yeah, I think there is a connection that's there. You know, if you look at the American Enterprise Institute's, um, I think they call it their success sequence. And the success sequence is somebody who has, um, they have completed high school education. They are full-time employed. They, and they get married before they have children. Those three things, if you do those three things, among millennials, 98% of millennials who follow that success sequence live above the poverty line. And so in talking with, you know, Ryan, you know, who's, you know, he's a, you know, the social scientist that did all the quantitative, you know, parts of our research, you know, in collaboration with us, um, 
in talking with him, our, the kind of perspective that we all have is that America works pretty well for you if you still kind of follow, you know, what might be, you know, labeled as, you know, trad or a traditional path. And that is get education, get married and have children in wedlock. And if you follow that path, America seems to be a place that really kind of works pretty well for you. You know, you'll be, you know, regardless of what you see on the internet and, you know, the ways in which maybe that particular you know, story is maybe not valued the same way that it used to be, but really that's really only online because you know, in real life, you know, those are the people who, you know, people's, you know, on the cul-de-sac seem to kind of value and, and respect. So I think in some ways you have people who, um, I think it was Brad Wilcox yesterday who wrote it um, wrote a piece that he, he had something that was interesting to say. He, he talked about the people who speak left, but they walk right. And I think that at the end of the day, I think that's what a lot of, you know, a lot of people are kind of doing. Um, yeah, I think America still runs on the idea of, you know, the institution of the, the nuclear family, even though these, you know, the percentage of these things seem to be eroding. Well, who are the people who are you know, who are doing well in, in culture and society today. And there are people who are following that kind of success sequence path um, there. So, and if, you know, and again, going back to the pragmatic reasons for why people are dechurching anyways, yeah, those things are going to disproportionately hurt you. And I think also, look, if you, if you get off that path, now you have cultural distance. Let's say you're not married or let's say you know, you have children out of wedlock, or let's say you have, you know, uh, you know, the churches in your area are larger than the middle class, but you're not a member of that. Well, there can be cultural distance. And, it, you know, let's, you know, I think to be pastoral here, I think there can also be shame. And you just feel like, well, I don't, I don't fit in because, I, you know, most of the people who are there are like this, but I'm not like that. And, that could be really hard. So I think there's a level of us, you know, when you, when you look at the new Testament and you look at the different churches, um, particularly on Paul's missionary journeys where he's writing all these, you know, pastoral letters to, these are some really complex, you know, groups of people <laughs> that have been put together. You know, you look at the, whether it's the church in Philippi or Corinth or in Ephesus, and you have, oh, you have very wide variations in ethnicity, very wide variations in socioeconomic, you know, status and class. And you have people who are, you know, kind of all taking communion together that, you know, that's a table that you wouldn't find anywhere else in those, in those cities. So I think that we have to be careful in terms of, you know, that we, that we fight against the, the, the natural impulse, which is birds of a feather flock together, you know, the body of Christ is a complex, you know, entity. And we don't want to just be, you know, churches that um, become, you know, monolithic in, in a way that um, really hurts the, the underlying, you know, mission that we have to make disciples, you know, of all peoples and all nations. And, um, Michael. So, 
Yeah. yeah. You talked there a little bit about the success sequence, which seems to be um, continuing to work for people in America. Um, the American Enterprise Institute, and I don't even know if they came up with that, but uh, describes the success sequence, which is essentially just, you know, getting some kind of education, as you described, getting married and then having children. If you do things in that order, life is going to go pretty well for you. But that's also just Genesis one and two. And what we are continuing to discover is that even if you don't make a profession of faith, if you generally live in the way God um, intended humanity to live, which is get married, then have children, be faithful to your spouse and, and love your kids your whole life. I mean, that works even if you don't make a profession of faith uh, in Jesus. So we, we continue to see kind of this, the class divide, which you described, which is partly a marriage divide, um, which now interestingly seems to have some connection to whether you're going to church. And, and that doesn't seem to be surprising as well. The people who would go to church would be more inclined to live in a success sequence, Genesis one and two uh, kind of a way. But Michael, I got another question for you about this, uh, the 30 million D church who kind of did so casually. I can hear the argument out there that, well, they may have grown up in the church, but if you just kind of drift away from church and it isn't convenient anymore, so you don't go, you were never there for the right reasons. Maybe you weren't actually a Christian in the first place. And so um, you may be de-churched, but you, you know, you may not have even been a Christian at all. So there's still a, an evangelistic need that needs to happen there. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, so when we kind of look look at the the you know, in the book, we go into all these different you know uh, profiles in tremendous detail. One of the things we talk about is orthodoxy score, and so if you look at the orthodoxy scores, and this is basically like Nicene Creed level Christianity. So the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus, Jesus's sinless life, his substitutionary death for our sins. Um, the resurrection of Jesus and the reliability of the Bible and the Trinity. Well, when you look at the 15 million people who left evangelical churches, it looks like about 5 million of those people really understand Nicene Creed level Christianity. About 10 million of them either don't understand it. They certainly don't understand it today, and maybe they never understood it overall. So when you look at the cultural Christians, um, that that first group of 8 million people, only 1% of them said that Jesus was the son of God. Contrast that with the mainstream evangelicals and the ex-evangelicals who said 98% and 97% that Jesus was the son of God. So when you look at it, this is why it's very important to not treat de-churched people as being monolithic because there's huge differences in kind of, you know, not just, you know, like what we're talking about here, you know, doctrinal things, but there's huge differences on when people left, why did they leave, what were their concerns, you know, the rate at which they're willing to return and what kind of things that they're looking for in, you know, in that return. So, but yeah, I would say probably two thirds of the people who left evangelical churches, they it doesn't seem like they were probably ever Christians. However, so, you know, but then, you know, you got those 5 million people who definitely kind of seem like they're probably, at least in the faith, at least in terms of, you know, where they're at from a doctrinal and belief standpoint. So again, it just varies pretty widely um, from profile to profile, kind of what you're looking at. The ex-evangelicals that you describe 
as one of these subsets. You said 98% of them are, are orthodox in their beliefs? So 97% of them would say that Jesus is the son of God, okay? You know, they had lots of different terrible options <laughs> of other perspectives they would have on Jesus, but 97% of them said that Jesus was the son of God. On the whole, their orthodoxy scores were about 70%. Okay. Compare that to the mainstream evangelicals who were in the mid eighties on that, on basically those seven things that kind of relate to Nicene Creed level Christianity. It looks like about one in five ex-evangelicals has, is not willing to return to any kind of Christian church of any kind. And it looks like they're out of the faith, but somewhere, you know, two thirds to three quarters looks like they have a lot of Christianity and evangelical Christianity really um, still there. It's just they had some very significant pain either interpersonally or institutionally or both. And they're very much done with the evangelical expression of the faith. Now, what's interesting about the ex-evangelicals is we can, you know, it, this group would trend trended middle age female. Okay. And I think 65% uh, female and average age uh, 53, 54 today. The, the thing that is interesting about this group is that they, you, typically when people think hear the term ex-evangelical, they think somebody who's either deconstructed or deconverted, they're hyper online, they're young and they're well-educated. Now that group does exist in inside of this ex-evangelical group. However, on, on the whole, the number of the, the evangelical group in our data set was the least online of all the groups, and they were not doing well in American culture and society. And so what I'm saying is there is there are a lot of people who are done with evangelical churches who are very quiet about it. They're not really on the internet. They're not really being influenced by, you know, the kind of deconstruction or deconversion stories that are occurring there. And the, and even kind of within the evangelical group, there's some very interesting, probably subgroups and subsets that look very, very divergent from each other, um, even within that. I mean, so much so that you could probably even, you know, kind of take that evangelical group and and turn it into some, you know, what people might think of stereotypically as the deconstructed, deconverted evangelical versus the evangelical is of somebody who's just been hurt by an evangelical church or hurt by evangelicals, but seems to really still be in the faith. Yeah. When I first saw your data, one of the things that struck me was the number of people who said they would be open to returning to church simply if someone asked them, if they had some kind of relationships within a, a church community. And, and we know that the nation right now, and, and even frankly, the world is dealing with a crisis of loneliness. Uh, and this has been well documented. A lot of this goes back to social media, um, and and you know we are have reason to think that the mass shooting crisis that we're dealing with is connected to this isolation and loneliness that individuals feel, and you know creates or is caused by mental illness. All of these things. Um, 
how much of the the de-churching and just the problems that we're dealing with culturally are the lack of friendships in people's lives? And is one of the big takeaways here for us as believers that we live in a world filled with people who don't have friends, who desperately want friends, who would be happy to be welcomed into the church if somebody would just show an interest in being their friend? This is 100%, 100% true. We are in a friendship recession, not just in America, but in, in certainly in the West and in many parts of the world. You know, we've traded our imbo- many of our embodied interactions for digital ones, and it's just not a good substitute. You know, regardless of how good the technology is, there's, there's no substitute for just being in real life with other people with sharing a meal, breaking bread, these different kinds, you know, just human <laughs> activities. And so in, in that friendship recession, you know, things like anxiety, depression, loneliness, despair, and suicidal thoughts, all of those things are higher among those who have de-churched than people who still go to church. Um, you know, the mental health on the whole and the physical health of people who go to church on a weekly or greater basis it is empirically, objectively true. Um, Tyler Vanderweel at Harvard has proven this over decades and decades of research that you know people who regularly attend you know religious worship services on a weekly or greater basis are doing much better health wise and doing much better mental health wise than the people who do not. And so the there are there is a tremendous opportunity for us. And the worse that this friendship recession gets, the lower the bar is for us to make a difference. Because, you know, the more lonely people get, the easier it is for us to make connections with them. And again, I just go back to, you know, it's family occupation, relationships and dreams. You know, be an interesting person, initiate conversation with other people, you know, don't don't eat alone, Um, you know, spend time, you know, you know, look at your calendar see how you spend your time and ask yourself okay well where can i bring other people into this well i got little kids my kids are five and six so every afternoon when it's like what do my kids want to do you know after school well it's like well they want to play on the playground and so what am i going to do am i just going to take them to the playground by themselves no they want to have other kids you know go to the playground with them and so what do i do i text other dads and say hey you know you want to go over to the you know such and such playground today and what do we do when we get together we have conversation and you know when you're just a you just have a you know that kind of quiet calm curious presence about you and you have a a confidence then in, in your identity in jesus well that's when you you become someone to somebody else who's persuasive because you know in a society that's that's lonely and fractured and joyless well <laughs> if you just are just an interesting person and 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 are just good at having conversations with other people then that's something that's very attractive and it's very persuasive. Yeah. My kids are older than yours, but the opportunities are the same once they're all playing soccer and basketball and whatever they're doing, because you're going to spend a lot of time standing on sidelines with other adults. And if you just care enough to start a conversation and ask them about their lives, it does open up doors. And and I think the the evidence is overwhelming that there are a lot of people who feel like no one really cares. 
and the moment you care, it seems like the the evidence is that uh, they want to be your friend, but they'll also probably go to church with you. And we also realize that the the Great Commission is not to get people into church. It's That's right. To, it's to make disciples of all nations. And, um, you know, how do, how do, what's, what's the step from, you know, okay, getting you inside of a, of a social club because you're lonely and now you feel like you have friends, but how do we as the church make sure that we keep the big E on the I chart and we realize, hey, I'm glad you're at church, but really the goal here is to become a disciple of Jesus. How do we make that transition? Yeah, so this is the question, right? And I think it's, it's no more complicated than this. We have to do two things at the same time. The first piece is, is what the lion's share of this conversation has been about. And that is doing better and having greater intentionality interpersonally. You know, exercise relational wisdom, be persuasive, connect with other people, um, ask good questions, you know, hear where they're at and take some relational risk, okay? The second prong to this is institutional, okay? And the institutional piece is making healthier churches. We have a gospel that's true. We have a gospel that's good for the world. And we have a gospel that promotes beauty. And so we have, you know, those are the classical kind of Western, you know, Greek, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty, that triumvirate. We have all of those things. And so we, we need to build local churches where people can see the truth, goodness, and beauty of the gospel in, in you know, not just our, our liturgy and our preaching, but they need to be able to see that in our, you know, in our church community and the ways in which we're, you know, you know, exercising the the goodness of the gospel and, and how we relate to in, into our communities. And so when we, so I want to, you know, if you're listening to this in your clergy, I just, you know, look, I was pastor for 15 years before working for the, you know, now working at the Keller Center. And I, I love pastors and I love, I love the local church. I just want to inspire you to continue, you know, always keep seeking to improve on, you know, your local church and, you know, wake up every morning excited to, you know, ask yourself the question of how can we be a little bit better this week, this month, this year, you know, keep fighting for, you know, having a healthier and, and better expression of the body of Christ in your community. So we built a website, um, a whole nother website devoted to helping uh, local churches. And that website is dechurching.com. <laughs> I know it's a really, a real hard URL to remember. So we built dechurching.com exclusively for people who are connected to local churches who want to make their local church um, better on, on this issue of dechurching. And so on there, we have a 20 point audit. So it's basically a checklist of how is your local church doing on 20 areas that definitely deeply impact the dechurching phenomenon. So things that help you close your back door, things that help you open your front door, and things that help you send out your church body better equipped. So there's a, a totally free 20-point audit um, that you can kind of you know talk through at your at your leadership team meeting at your church and kind of see okay and give give yourself a little bit of a self assessment of 
how are we doing on this? And then on there, um, there's a, there's a paid resource in the event that you want like basically worksheets on how to make improvements on each of those 20 areas, but the audit is there and that's totally free. And so we need to be able to make progress on both the individual and on the institutional fronts at the same time. And those things need to be working in parallel with each other. Because like you said before, it's, yeah, it's not about just getting butts in seats. You know, we have to, you know, in order to, you know, fulfill the great commission, we have to actually make disciples. In order to do that, we need to be doing church in a decent and orderly way. And so I have confidence that we can, you know, that we can do these things. None of these things are outside of our grasp. And almost, you know, when you look at the, you know, three quarters of the why people you know, 30 of the 40 million people who left. Well, we have a lot of agency with those people who left for very pragmatic reasons. And so I want to inspire, you know, if you're listening to this, I want to inspire you to take relational risk. Well, who do you want to take relational risk with? I want to tell you, <laughs> I know, I, I, I'm going to tell you right now who God wants you to, <laughs> um, who he wants you to talk to. So are you, do I have your attention? Um, God wants you to take relational risk with somebody he is consistently putting right in front of you. So I just want to inspire you to take some relational risk. Maybe ask that question of, hey, are you a person of faith? You know, or maybe it's, you know, somebody that you've identified that, you know, like I said before, the, the mainstream de-churched evangelical, 100% of whom, if you ask them, they'll come to church with you. If you like, if you read the book and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, my such as, you know, my neighbor to my right is definitely this. Like, I just need to, you know, I just need to invite that person to church. Hey, you know, Susie, I really love my church. I like my church for reasons A, B, and C. I want you to see if you might feel the same way about this. Would you come to church with me and we can go grab lunch, you know, after at your favorite place, you know, after let me buy you lunch. Um, so I just want to inspire you to take some relational risk, um, you know, after you just kind of get educated on some of these different profiles. We'll let that be the last word. The website is dechurched.com. Did I have that Church, right? Dechurching. Yeah, oh, dechurching.com. Dechurching Mm -hmm. And the book is The Churching. Who's leaving? Why are they going? And what will bring them back? Michael Graham, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And friends, we thank you for listening in on this conversation. I know you've learned something today because I certainly have. Make sure you share it with a friend because then they will as well. Also, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you have found us because if you don't, you won't get reminders about the next episode and that would be sad for you and for me. Always reach out if you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions for future episodes. We love hearing about that from you. So email me at outstanding at washingtonstand.com. It's been my pleasure to be with you. I look forward to next time. My name is Joseph Backholm, and this has been Outstanding. Outstanding is a production of The Washington Stand, where you can find news and commentary from a biblical worldview.